to Stargate SG Fun, the podcast where we talk about episodes of Stargate SG One series in order, but we spend more time on the episodes that we think are interesting and/or important to the series. I'm Trisha Matson. I'm Andrew Patias, and I'm David Schaub. And today we're talking about a uh, set of episodes that have a lot more to do with the gold than uh, some of the previous episodes have been. And one of the themes is, where do little gold come from? Uh, (laughs) I had a quick follow-up item first, Mm -hmm. and it's a somewhat challenging one, I find, which is, how do we refer to all the inhabitants of these planets? We don't generally find a lot about their culture. They're kind of a less-than-subtle reference to older human cultures frequently. But all of these people and all these planets all across the galaxy are pretty much universally the product of descendants or currently victims of this massive slave trade that the Gould have done to the humanity. And they've been on these planets for thousands of years. So in some of the previous episodes, we use the term native. I'm not entirely comfortable with that. It has unfortunate colonialist uh, connotations, for one thing. And they're not actually native to the planets. The show, at least in Singularity, I think tended to use the word indigenous. That may be closer, but didn't feel quite right. But I think we had a brief conversation offline, and maybe we considered that we'll stick with locals. Right. My sister used to work for the State Department, and that was the approved term. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure the show also refers to them as locals, especially O'Neill, I think, tends to refer to them that way. It's a challenging aspect of the show, and we'll we'll do our best. We've talked about the colonialist aspects of just the whole show's concept, and so I think it's definitely good to keep this kind of thing in mind as, as we go forward. Mm-hmm. David, why don't you start us off by reminding us what happened in Bloodlines. Teal'c must rescue his son, Rayak, from becoming Jaffa on Chulak. Hammond isn't impressed, but authorizes the mission. SG-1 goes and meets Teal'c's teacher, Bratak. Teal'c is too late to save Rayak from becoming Jaffa, but does kill the Gould larva and priest. His wife is not impressed. Carter and Jackson find a jug of Gould, but only take one. Teal'c gives Rayak his gould to save Rayak's life. Luckily, Carter brings Teal'c a new one. They return home, accomplishing little and leaving Teal'c's family on Chulak. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yep. <laughs> and they don't even show the family at the end. That's what got me. On the second time watching it, the scene where they're at the Stargate and the family didn't come there, they just went off to hopefully get away with what happened? I don't understand. Right. I mean, if they're hiding the family somewhere, maybe it's important that they go do that immediately. But And you talked on our last episode about how at the end of Thor's Hammer that they had to return the show to stasis, to the standard thing where they could just have regular adventures. And you see that happening here so, so, so strongly that <laughs> if this were a prestige show these days, they would have brought them back and then it would have been a, a long plot line of like how they're acclimating to Earth, what they want to do next, you know, some sort of slow emergency that's building about how they're going to handle this family. And here they're just like, nope, they're going to go somewhere else so we don't have to deal with them for a while. Yeah, it is very odd in that emotionally odd that they spend so much time on the farewell to Braytag, (laughs) (laughs) Teal's mentor. But yeah, it's kind of like, okay, kid's got his school to keep him alive from whatever disease it was, and off we go. Scarlet fever. Oh yeah, which uh, Jack, he's no doctor, but he recognizes it on sight. (laughs) (laughs) He gets it right away. Yep, there are certainly some diseases, I'm sure, which are are relatively easy to diagnose, but I don't know if scarlet fever is one of them. Given this show's scientific accuracy quotient, I would not bet large amounts of money that they got this accurate either. It starts out with the whole teal 
eventually coming to the point where he admits to Jack that he has a son. And Jack very reasonably says, you know, how can we trust you now that you completely lied about this for the first couple of episodes? And I wanted to sort of raise my hand and say, oh, that's because the show doesn't want to actually deal with long-running plot threads. Now, that makes total sense from a show perspective. But yeah, Jack isn't buying it. The fact that General Hammond is like, no way am I letting you go back there. Oh, wait. Yes, I am. He can't resist being the teddy bear. He just can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> he really can. It's, it's totally inexplicable why he lets them go back. But of course, they have to go back to go do it. So in our previous podcast, we were talking about how knowledge about the Gould gets transmitted. Yes. And here we find out that Braytek actually taught Teal'c that the Gould are false gods. So yeah, there is some back channel talk right. among the Jaffa about their masters. We had to talk around it because David didn't know who Braytek was yet. <laughs> yep. But yeah, fairly direct way that presumably uh, Teal could find out about a uh, uh, forbidden knowledge. So yeah, so that makes sense. I did like in the in the meditation scene where uh, Teal is trying to meditate and Jack comes in and he's like, you know, hey, you mind if I come in? And then he doesn't get a reaction and he comes in anyway, which feels very Jack-like. Yep. And then also the fact that there are like a hundred candles in there and like all these shows that make these scenes with lots of candles when they don't acknowledge at all how long it must take to set all these candles and to blow them out and all this other stuff. It's just, it always amuses me when shows do that. It's part of the ritual. <laughs> like three candles would be enough. <laughs> you know, he's only probably going to look at three candles, but he's got to have like 50 of them out there. I want to give a quick call out to the dream scene, which very efficiently uses the same set that we go to later in the episode. Yep. <laughs> yes. Very prophetic. <laughs> same priest, I think. <laughs> And also that scene where they're trying to find out whether they can use a drug to replace the, the uh, symbiote for Teal'c. Mm -hmm. And they mention that it's because they want a, a symbiote to study. And I'm like, wait, shouldn't your number one thing be to get Teal'c to be free of the gold? But no, they mention only having it for study. So, which is something they mentioned before. So that's a good through line through a couple of episodes. We'll get to it more as we go through this episode and later episodes, how much this show does to avoid SGC having a small pot of ghoul to play with. <laughs> which I don't even understand why it would matter that much, why they're avoiding it to the degree they are. But maybe some future plot will make that at least consistent. Yeah. Teal'c wants to go back on his own and he puts those old armor on and Hammond says, you know, we can't let you leave with all the secrets of the base. And Teal'c says, oh, I would die first. And I'm like, yeah, that's not really realistic. <laughs> we know that they have mind control things. We know that they have other stuff. No, no, you just can't do that. But of course, they got him go anyway. I don't know if the mind control would work. And I don't even know if a Gould can possess a Jaffa. No, that's true. But yeah, so they go to Chuark, which is... Um, Another thing that was funny to me, like, again, it's a whole planet, which apparently only has the gate traffic needed for one gate, which is mostly not used at all. It's a sort of planet with any sort of commerce between other world planets. We would constantly be having all sorts of traffic, all sorts of merchants coming through, but I guess that's not what happens here. And instead, Teal'c is able to bluff his way past the guard, because I guess the, the priest there doesn't recognize his voice, even though he was first prime for years and years. Yep. We won't mention that. Really pretty easy to get past him, really pretty easy to wander around this hostile planet without anyone doing anything about you, which is very convenient for our, uh, our plot. But then they go to his house and his house has been destroyed. So that was kind of a good little scene where we get Teal reacting to the fact that these are the bad things that happened to his family. Yeah, he's sobbing out loud at seeing the burned out wreckage of his home. The actor usually plays a very stoic character, so it's nice to see Christopher Judge getting a chance to emote here. Yeah, I'm not sure he can pull it off. <laughs> 
I'm completely percent. We've had moments in previous episodes where he's gotten a little more emotional as well. So, you know, it is nice when they let him do more than just have that stoic face. And it totally makes sense. You would have thought like, of, no, he doesn't have a family because if he had a family, they would be punished very severely for him leaving. But nope, he does have a family. But then they meet Braytac, which is played by an actor named Tony Amendola. I like this portrayal of Braytac. I like that actor playing this person. He's this very confident, very uh, brash sort of person. And he makes a lot of jokes about being old, but still a good warrior. And then he also has some of the, uh, he talks about a human woman. So he's got some of the prejudices of his society. And then I think at one point he bites Daniel's hand, which I was thinking like, what, what is that about? Why would you do that? Testing for calluses, maybe? <laughs> Daniel's weak, soft hands. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That could be that. I think that actor really, he just has fun with this role. He does. So <laughs> I've enjoyed, I enjoy all the scenes with him. I did briefly start wondering how you calculate years on different planets, but I suppose eh, all the planets are in a Goldilocks zone of a yellow star. Sure, why not? <laughs> it's close enough to Earth orbit to be, you know, habitable. So <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. If we ever get to it, there's an episode many, many years on <laughs> that kind of makes fun of this in a way. And I'm I'm actually curious whether Trish knows what I'm talking about many, many years away. But uh, we'll see if we get to that episode and we'll see if I remember do a callback on that. But yeah, totally worth being a little annoyed about, being a little exasperated about. But we're just going to move on. <laughs> Another thing like that is the question we've always had that they always have to have everyone speak in English. But they all can speak in English, but they don't understand each other's idioms, right? which is a strange line to draw. Yeah. But yeah. they play it so amusingly, I kind of let them get away with that, too. <laughs> Yeah, that unfortunately is a logical problem that we just have to agree to look past. Right. Yeah, and I think that was in the, well, I guess you guys didn't watch it, or not all of you watched it, the brief candle, where they were asking- Right, I watched that. They couldn't read. So they were like, what does this word read? I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? But yeah, so cross that bridge when they come to it. I think it's the idiom yep. that Braytech doesn't know. And then, of course, we come back to that at the very end. I did like- there's like one moment, I think, with Teal'c and Braytac, where they're both kind of standing near each other, and they both have the same stance, which I thought was a nice little physical bit, because mm-hmm. the episode, both standing upright, both holding the staff weapons the same way, and it's just such a very different body language than the rest of the crew. That was good. So they split up, right? So Sam and Daniel go to find some symbiotes. They were sent, I think, just to guard the gate. They didn't do that. <laughs> right, right. They were supposed to just guard the gate, <laughs> but they see a caravan of people carrying an odd, beautifully decorated no. container and decide to follow along and see what that is about. Yeah. And a lot of the same way as the pilot, the men are in robes and the women are in skimpy clothing, which, mm-hmm. okay, thanks, SG-1, we're doing that again. <laughs> but yeah, they want to go get the thing. And I think what happens is we can sort of, they drive away the guards or there's no one there or something? There's no guards. They deposit the container at the shrine or whatever they call it and leave. Which is, why would you do that? And then Daniel wants to destroy it. And Sam's like, no, 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 don't. Right. It turns out to be a container of ghouled larvae. Yeah. And Daniel wants to just destroy it. And Carter very sensibly takes a sample, although unsensibly does not take the whole thing. Maybe it's too heavy for them to carry. So she just- Yeah, but you could put like two or three. Exactly. <laughs> no reason. Right. She she sticks one into a canteen. Yeah, plot reasons, plot. The question is asked, why are there no guards? And I think they throw a lantern on it saying, well, who'd try and steal one? Yeah. But then Daniel, understandably- turns around and, and destroys it anyway, which is interesting. You know, we're doing both this episode and, and Hathor in one podcast. And so I think it is interesting to sort of take this moment and then a moment later on in Hathor together. 
But yeah, kind of a nice scene with Daniel and, and Carter getting to see a little bit more of his, how he feels about the gold and how he reacts to them. Carter gives the line, you don't want to be just like them, do you? Yeah. And Jackson just doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's not quite how it works, right? Exactly. And yes. yeah, I can't quite agree with yeah. her comparison either. <laughs> Moving on. What is it? Jack and Teal'c go to see Ryak and, and Dreyak. So many apostrophes in this episode. <laughs> So Teal comes in and, and interrupts the, the Primta ceremony, kills the priest. Is that the same priest? No, there was another priest by the gate. This is a different priest. Kills him, destroys the, the symbiote, only to find out that, that Dreyak is like, no, you fool, I was trying to save him. I love how wonderfully contrary she is to Teal. She is just not afraid of him. She is not happy with him. It was a nice little bit of drama there to have them have those interactions together. My brief headcanon about the setup also is that the caravan that we saw going back to the Gould shrine oh, yeah. was actually coming from delivering the Gould for the Primta yep. in that tent. Yep. So that which that would work out for timing. Sure, yep. maybe. And I don't know if there was actually any Goulds in that jug that they were carrying around. I think there's a lot to get into how we're supposed to feel about Kilk's wife's reaction to this. What do you think? Are we supposed to be sympathetic to her for dealing with the situation? Or are we supposed to view her as a collaborator who is trying to live nicely and, and get by happily with the Gould? So yep. it's a challenging scene in that regard, because this entire episode is basically Teal'c being proven, not proven wrong, but Teal'c has to compromise and accept the reality. But we're supposed to not like his son becoming Jafar. Yep. I totally sympathize with her throughout. And I also think the show grappling with, again, the, the ramifications of his actions mm -hmm. in a difficult situation was the best part of this episode. Yes. Right? Yes. I didn't blame her for trying to survive as best she could. I was kind of amused when Teal'c told her, okay, when I go away, you put the blame on me for trying to steal my son away. And she says, okay, like she was ever going to do anything else but that. <laughs> <laughs> Right. I was still trying to get over the fact that that would even work, but okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the alternative is that they get executed and that would leave us with no more show. So that would take the show in, in, a, in a darker direction than they're willing to take it. But they're willing to take it in a relatively dark direction. They're being thrown into sort of the poorest part of town and barely being able to survive. Like, that's the darkest this show's ever going to get, I think. And they went and they did go as far as they could with it, which I thought was was relatively commendable for giving the show, giving the, the situation as real stakes as they could. So I did appreciate that. The crowds were horrified by Bertak and Tilk. Right, right. They were afraid. They were afraid of Jaffa running through the poor people's camp. No, I, I like that. I like that aspect of it. Because mm -hmm. again, when you make us feel like it's a bit more of a, of a more complex real society, we have stakes in, we we feel like we're, we're living in. I like it. I do like that aspect of it. They're like, okay, well, we, we couldn't give him the, the symbiote, so he's still dying, so we got to get him to the gate. Right. They're trying to get him through the gate back to Earth where they can cure scarlet fever with earth medicine. But he's too weak to make it all that way. And so Teal'c decides to give up his larva to his son. And Jack, of course, is worried about that. But Teal'c says, it's, it's my life to sacrifice if I choose. Yep. So my challenge with this plan kind of relates to what I'm going to discuss about Hathor as well, in terms of what the Primta is. Because there's two steps in this process, clearly. And the first step is very unclear in this episode and becomes more clear in Hathor, mm -hmm. ah, okay. which is taking a human and giving them a womb for a gold larva. Mm -hmm. right. Making an, an anatomically uh, unlikely empty space in your stomach area for this, yeah. Which would make it seem more likely to just make women the hosts all the time, but 
I guess the, those sexist societies wouldn't have accepted that. Yeah. We have seen female Jaffa in the first movie, but that's the only one female Jaffa I think we've seen. <laughs> yeah, David, that's the only one you're ever going to see. Are you serious? <laughs> wow. Yep. Okay. <laughs> My theory is that the womb is actually, as a function of it destroying the immune system, is they're actually making it out of the human appendix. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's my headcanon. Mm -hmm. Could be sure. But yeah, I have no idea why they only make them out of men, but okay. But I would have assumed that that is the act that makes someone Jaffa, and that is the act that kills your immune system unless you get a ghouled larva, which is why he was dying so quickly of scarlet fever is he has no immune system, and taking him to Earth is not going to help him because they can't help Tilk <laughs> without an immune system either. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. They probably didn't really think it through. As soon as he had become a a Jaffa, he needed a Gould because there is no solution for uh, that. Yeah, well. And I got really confused in this episode because those two steps are not clear here. Yep. They become right. clear in Hathor. Yep. I would have almost preferred to have seen Hathor first because this episode would have at least then made more sense to me in terms of at least the biology of what's going on. <laughs> I watched 10 years of Stargate SG-1 and I've seen this episode countless times and none of that ever occurred to me. So yeah, for whatever that's worth. But you're absolutely right. Even by their own canon, he would not have survived. And they just completely breezed past that because <laughs> they didn't have an answer for it. So yeah. But clearly they need a supply of ghouls. And from a storyline perspective, you know, when when Daniel and Sam get one ghouled symbiote and then, you know, it doesn't work with bringing him to the gate of, you know, of course he's going to take that symbiote. Of course, of course, you know, though actually it, that goes into Teal'c instead of into, into Ryak. But yeah, like you knew that very neatly put together puzzle pieces for this episode, right? There's really no no suspense at all in terms of what's actually going to happen. Although I do think they actually give you a decent amount of suspense with, you know, the running and the fighting and everything else. There's action. There's It's a well-paced episode, I think, for the most part. But but yeah, like, you know what's going to happen. Carter does great work with one grenade. Yeah, on a meta level, it's pretty clear that they're all going to get back to the planet. There is some question of whether Ryak would go with them or not, but it's pretty clear that they're all going to make it back to Earth. I'm almost a little surprised that the SGC or U.S. military hasn't figured out a way of just trying to take over Trulak. How much of a U.S. military force could they ram through that Stargate <laughs> <laughs> and just try and hold the Stargate on the other side? Presumably there would be a, a glowed spaceship nearby that could bomb them. Yeah, that would be the risk. But they might have to destroy the Stargate. You're absolutely correct that, that all of these planets, and it's also very, it's a very Star Trekian thing. Right. Where the planet only has one culture and everyone seems to be right next to each other. You know, a, a platoon could like take over this place, right? Uh, in general. It, it feels that way, but... Yeah. I mean, it makes some sense. Towns, villages show up usually around ports, and the Stargate is the ultimate port. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you definitely expect like there, there to be the bulk of civilization on any of these planets is always going to be centered at least near the Stargate. Sometimes surprisingly far from near it, the gate. but definitely near it. Yeah, yeah so they eventually, a very big emotional scene where Raya gets the gold, and then Teal'c is dying, but then Teal'c gets the other gold. And they do lampshade that as well, that it's a, it's an infant, so it's more dangerous to put it in him. But yeah, everybody, it all works out. And then they go back to the gate, and they have to trick the people at the gate again, and it doesn't really work. So Braytech has to knock them out, but he doesn't kill them. He doesn't. Which seemed a little weird, <laughs> but okay. And then, you know, we get that, that line where he says, you know, I, what will you do about the fact that they're going to wake up? And he says, well, I will cross that bridge when we come to it. You know, it's kind of fun. Again, the, the fun last scene with, with Braytech and, and talking with Teal'c and having their little 
you know, Jaffa bonding moment and all of that. You know, as we talked about, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that this is how they're going to do it. But it, yes, it's absolutely true that like the Braytac Teal relationship is definitely being stressed more. The whole Ryak and Dreak thing is there in order to get Teal to have his bro moment with Braytac. That's what the show's doing. I really wanted one more scene with his wife. Just just one more scene would have really made yep, me feel They better. don't care. They really don't care. Yeah. It's too bad. But Braytech is happy because now he has another young warrior to teach of new worlds and false gods, right. as he says. Yep. And I did like that the entire team saluted Braytech as they were about to step back through the gate. Not bad for a man of 133. <laughs> That's right. Did, did you like it? Did you like the episode? Did you not like it? <sighs> I think I might have liked it more after Hathor, but it just had too many kludgy bits for me to really get into it. The plot just just felt a little too held together by duct tape and <laughs> chewing gum. Yeah. They do want to have some episodes throughout the series focusing on the other characters. And I think I actually mentioned this early on where I said, you know, the episodes which focus on the everyone other than Richard Dean Anderson are always a little iffy. And I think I've been proven right with this case. You know, they, they really wanted to give him that moment, some, something to do. And it just wasn't the best. But eh, Trish, what did you think? It's a pretty kludgy episode. There are awkward bits. It conveys some valuable information to us, and I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say we'll see Braytac again, so that's a valuable <laughs> character introduction. And eh, it's not one I'm going to rewatch for the dramatic value, that's for sure. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think in my original list of episodes for season one, I did not even include Bloodlines. It's kind of important for the plot stuff, though. Yeah, we, we definitely needed to watch it, but yeah. And I, I think David might might have figured out by now that we are definitely including a lot of episodes which might otherwise not necessarily seem to be super important. Uh, possibly because, yeah, you're going to see some of these people again. So, Which is fine. That's that's what I, yeah. I'm here for because I can't make the watch order for Stargate SG-1. Yeah. I can't make those calls. So I, I trust you with making these calls. Yeah. And, and I've actually, there are actually episodes now where I'm realizing I have what I think of as fun memories for the episode than I might otherwise have had because there are later related episodes that are even better. I look forward to them. So yep. we will see see how that feels. Yeah. All right. Next one's Fire and Water, which we're not going to do a deep dive on, but I will give a, a, a relatively short synopsis of it. So Daniel is being held captive by a fish person while the rest of the team is sent home from the fish person's planet with false memories that Daniel's been killed. This fish person wants to know the fate of his mate who lived in Babylon and it turns out was killed by the Gua'uld Belas. Uh, this fish person extracts a memory of Daniel reading about what happened to his mate from his mind in a dangerous procedure and then lets him go just as the team is shaking off the false memory and comes back to rescue him. And if that doesn't sound like there's a whole lot of tension in this episode, that's because there wasn't. <laughs> we get more of uh, rubber alien masks. We get more of Dr. Frazier. So Dr. Frazier gets gets to, gets to some bits in this episode. Uh, General Hammond being a softie. And Michael Shanks chewing the scenery. I don't remember if I mentioned exactly like this before, but again, I, I have my own thoughts about how great the actors on this are. But uh, I do think Michael Shanks can do intensity very well. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily emotion, but intensity. And they, they let him do that quite a bit, actually. Once they, and maybe once they realize that he could do it, he does it a lot, even in this season. And I appreciate it. I think, I think it, it's good. I will note that they also let him discard his glasses for this episode for plot reasons. And I certainly think, uh, geeky, bespectacled, uh, 
Daniel is attractive enough, but with the, all the emoting, it's really nice to see his eyes clearly through all those scenes. Just one other thing that uh, I thought was fun about the episode is that when they're holding the funeral for Daniel, Teal'c really does not understand the custom of wakes. Because on Chulak, when you lose someone, you fast for three days to mourn, which makes sense to me. <laughs> It was a lost opportunity that the scenes with all the characters without Daniel there, reminiscing about him talking in his in his apartment, were not better than they were. Because they really could have been good moments of you know character building and emotion. And they just weren't. They just weren't that good. Because the characters are written very broadly and they just didn't have any any hooks to 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 build on for those scenes. And so they just made them kind of blah, I think, which is again just unfortunate because there have been good character moments between the characters before giving these actors a moment to shine. And this just wasn't it. So that's it. Yep. That's it as far as I'm concerned. Now, before we start on the recap for Hathor, okay, I know this is cringy watching in 2020, (laughs) (laughs) but 20 plus years ago, this episode for me was all about girl power. And so I remembered it fondly enough to want it included in the order. So (laughs) sorry, guys. Okay. (laughs) Well, and also, um, on a bit more of a serious note, I am going to give this a content warning. Yes. This is a an episode that in how uh, they portray it is about sexual assault. So if that is something that you can just skip, then you can feel free to completely skip kind of the rest of this episode. We're going to do Hathor and then we're also going to do Singularity after this. But if you need to skip it, skip it because we are going to talk about it. David, you have the recap for us? An Egyptian sarcophagus is found in a Mayan temple freeing the Gould Hathor. She shows up at SGC, but nobody takes her seriously for reasons beyond me. (laughs) Hathor mind-controls all the men, collects juice from Jackson, turns O'Neill into Jaffa, and Queen Bee's a bathtub full of gold larvae. Carter leads far too few women and Teal'c to stop Hathor. Luckily, she unjaffas O'Neill before the sarcophagus Gould chamber is magically destroyed, tranquilizes all the men, and for some reason, the Gould larva all burst into flames before Hathor escapes to Chulak. Yep. Okay, so... <laughs> <laughs> oh, this episode. All right. The mysterious woman who shows up at the uh, mountain in Colorado. Everyone just treats her like she's crazy in a humorous way. That treatment is not great. Yeah, I mean, totally inexplicably, right? Like, she knows things about the Stargate. There's no way that just some run-of-the-mill person with mental problems would have that kind of information, but they're all just complete... Okay, okay, that's it. Yep. And they got a sarcophagus that says, this is Hathor on it. (laughs) (laughs) Which is like, what, is that a coincidence? It just made me laugh so much that they put the sarcophagus in the gate room. (laughs) Yeah. Seems like a really bad idea. When it had been shipped to them from somewhere else. And I realized that this is because this is probably the only set Mm -hmm. they had with that much floor space. But yeah, it's completely silly. Like you would not send that giant thing down two elevators just to put it in the gate room. Just wouldn't do it. It wouldn't fit. (laughs) Probably not the end of my outburst, but for now it is. If they knew what it was, it would make sense to put it in the most secure place. But they don't actually know what it is until... Well, they know know what it is. They know what the sarcophagus is because they encountered one in the movies. I actually like that callback that they used the sarcophagus again. Mm -hmm. And for the same thing, for for healing in the same way that they did in the movies. So that that part I like. And yet they destroyed it again to get back to the status quo. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, go on, Trish. (laughs) 
So Daniel, being, you know, the military softy, asks if the cuffs are necessary for this woman, frees her and apologizes to her. She kisses his hand and you see her blowing a purple mist of, I think of it as pheromones, but they call it chemicals or something later. She's speaking in the royal we in every phrase. We are we were drawn to the chapa eye is how she explains how she found SG Command. And she explains that she's Hathor, the daughter and wife of Ra. Hammond is unimpressed, but leaves Daniel with her to get more information. He says, without disclosing anything, she kisses Hammond's hand too to bless him with fertility and joy. (laughs) Uh, After Daniel urges Hammond to play into her decisions. After they all leave, she gives Daniel gold eyes to command him, and he does not run screaming away because he's already <laughs> under the influence. Yep. She gives him a second dose in that room, I think, right? She gives him at least one more dose. Yep. Well, maybe two more doses. I don't remember where they all come from. It feels like she needs like a booster shot right? Mm-hmm. to get the, someone completely under her control. Right. Anyway, after he tells her, she's been asking, where is Ra? all this time and he admits that yeah. they killed Ra and she smiles and says perhaps we should choose you to be our new beloved and she takes off the Air Force uniform that they had dressed her in and reveals a beautiful skin tight dress underneath and he kisses her. Really she was just wearing a trench coat. Well I would say that you know something is wrong but in fact Daniel kisses more than one woman in this series. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, Daniel comes back to the others and tells them, hey, she really is a ghoul imprisoned for 2,000 years. Yeah. And they still don't believe him. I know, right? I don't understand. (laughs) (laughs) As a brief aside, I also don't understand why it's 2,000 years, because no one can apparently decide when the last time Ra was on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> no, it should have been five thousand or something. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a mistake. But on the other hand, the, the bit about about uh, Hathor is I actually like Hathor. I haven't looked it up myself, but that seems fairly plausible that Hathor was those things in Egyptian mythology. Sure. I thought bringing in the character of Hathor was actually a good move for the series. Mm-hmm. Right, and I can say a little bit about, more about that later. But anyway, it makes sense that there would be more than one evil gold pretending to be a god in the Egyptian pantheon along with the other divinities that were impersonated. Right. And I have to say, I really quite liked all of the never-ending eye-rolling that Carter gives in this episode. (laughs) It is very enjoyable. Yes. (laughs) Everyone is worth it. Yep. Right. Daniel insists that Hathor is a friend. Initially, Sam and Jack and Teal'c want to keep her locked up. Teal'c says that he has served the Gould and he has yet to meet a good one. Yeah. Remember that for later. Good line. Yep. And Hammond falls under the influence. Jack falls under the influence. And Hather finally notices Sam Carter and says, you are an exceedingly beautiful woman. And Sam awkwardly says, thanks. So are you. <laughs> I did love uh, Don Davis, who who plays uh, General Hammond. He can do creepy. Yeah. We didn't know this before, right? From the series. But he can do creepy when he wants to. And it's delicious. Yeah, this creepy, goofy smile on his face. Just him smiling. <laughs> I think yeah, the difference really nice. is that he lets his teeth show a little bit in a crooked smile. Whereas most yep. of the time, if you see him smile at all, it's, it's more with his lips. But he kind of just stands there with this goofy, creepy grin on. And then when Sam protests that it seems like women are falling under Hathor's spell, Hammond goes into this, I am in command 
thing and totally dismisses Sam and goes off to give Hathor a tour of the facility. Sam is petted talking with Jack and expressing her worries. He accuses her of double standards by treating Hathor the way that she hates to see people treating Teal'c, which I thought was a good line, but she replies reasonably that Teal'c has proven his loyalty and Hathor has not. They didn't give Teal'c a a tour of the base when he first came through. They put him in a jail cell. And also Teal'c just has a ghoul in his gut, not in his brain. I have serious issue with this comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Although Jack doesn't sound completely smitten yet. So, and I actually did think they they did a decent job with having kind of different levels of being under her control. Yeah, I thought that was a good thing too, that, you know, they're not just instantly completely mindless drones to her, that she does have to do repeated doses and things. The show is true to the characters, or at least how they want the characters to be, which is Jackson falls pretty easily and O'Neill resists. And this is the next scene where Jackson is continuing to ask questions. She has to even be further put under the influence in order to shut up. Right. He still has the scientific curiosity. And she gives the creepy line that, you know, she is the queen of gods and mother of all gods. He asks what that means. And she says, did you ever wonder where the children come from? From us and others like us. (laughs) And the nickel drops for Jackson. And he says, like queen bees. Meanwhile, Janet Frazier is doing online research about Hathor and fertility goddesses. Carter is and talks to Frazier about it. Right, right, right. They're together and speculating about how to reverse the reaction. And Sam just wants to neutralize Hathor, by which I understand kill, but whatever. This is the 90s. You have to say researching on the net. (laughs) Right. Although one of the fans has pointed out that the website that Carter is looking at, the address bar shows a local file name (laughs) because of course that's what they actually use to to make that web browser show that page but yeah they were not smart enough to to hide that meanwhile hathor is further explaining to daniel that we need the code of life from the juices of the species Uh, to prevent rejection for the children you will honor us by being the one to contribute the code Daniel hesitates that, you mean, you want me to help you create more gold? And she doses him again. That is kind of one of the scenes, and I think there's more than one, but one of the scenes where the show kind of acknowledges how horrific this is. And I I do think this episode is trying to both be a sort of a femme fatale episode Mm -hmm. and a horror episode Mm -hmm. and never quite knows how to do either as well as they want to. It's significant that the next time we see Daniel, he is sitting still in a stupor, gazing into space and cannot be roused from it by, you know, shaking his shoulder and speaking to him. Whether his experience was so horrific or he is so deeply still under the influence of the drugs. Obviously, it's a traumatic experience for him, and he was raped, or chemically seduced, but raped. And I think it's good that the show does not in any way laugh that off. It doesn't here. It does later. <laughs> it's borderline. That's the challenge. Like, they give us the line, we do so enjoy the method of procuring the code in your species. Mm. Right, but she's supposed to be evil. The other characters in the team, you know, Jack doesn't laugh in a manly way and punch Daniel's shoulder or anything like that. It's the other members of the team take it seriously. These particular scenes I did, I did like that they gave him 
the seriousness of it, anything like that one moment where he kind of grabs her arm, where he's really trying to resist, yes. that is showing that she's forcing him to betray his deeply held beliefs. Mm-hmm. Again, I don't think they really convey the entirety of the of the horror of it, but they do as much as they can on it. And there's the one other aspect is Hathor already is in a human. So the scene makes no sense. Oh. Yeah. Maybe there's a context for it where every wave of gold she has to produce, she needs to do this, like, I suppose, but it's, oh. Yeah, where do those symbiotes actually come out of. I didn't want to ask that. Yeah, the show does not go into too much detail about that, which is probably for good. But yeah, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense biologically wise. Yeah, I would I would agree. Right. Well, looking at the um, Alien movie franchise. Yeah, they take a lot from Alien for this one. Yeah. Yep. Right, right. The aliens do take genetic material from their prey for the next generation of aliens. So a idea is not too hard to swallow. It's just I see your point about, you know, why should it be male DNA? Maybe they need them both. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. Maybe they need that Y chromosome for some reason. <laughs> they want the show to be, you know, a bit of horror with this, but the, the femme fatale, they want the va-va-voom kind of yep. element with Hathor, who is taking a, a woman host. And, you know, they just kind of want it in a bunch of different ways. They want it to be a little salacious, mm-hmm. while at the same time acknowledging the horror of it. The only way to pull it off is by keeping it all a little blurry, so you don't think about the fact that they're trying to combine all these things too much. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a hard knife edge to walk and they don't do it that much better than they have in the past. (laughs) Okay. The first counterattack by the women, Sam Carter is handing out weapons to all the air women they could find. Janet protests that it's been years since her training. Sam just says point and pull the trigger, but don't hit the men. (laughs) Tilk shows up and they all point their weapons at him. But he says that the Gould protects him from the mental influence. They find Hathor in the locker room, sitting in a hot tub. Men come and human shield her, and the women just all surrender their weapons. I didn't like that. They really should have just started shooting. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, yeah, like hit him in the leg, right? Exactly. Have we learned anything from Terminator 2? <laughs> just hit him in the leg. You did skip past what I thought was the best line. When they're trying to figure out their plan for trying to take back the base themselves, Carter says, when was the last time you saw a new woman get assigned here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which was probably the most honest line from the entire episode. <laughs> Self-awareness in the show, yeah. So, the women are all locked up and Tilk is in another cell. Sam says, Mama, there'd be days. Mama said there'd be days like this. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Janet says, really? My ex-husband used to say, there's a reason they call it this man's army. And they do further dialoguing about this. Sam says, I can't figure out how to be one of the guys with these guys. I always feel like the girl. And that somehow gives Janet an idea that, uh, hey, since Hathor is driving all these men wild with pheromones and hormones, let's do a sexual uh, titillation thing to get the men off their guard. Seduce the men, yes. They just get them in there so they can hit them on the head. For certain values of seduce, right. Yes. And hit more people on the head. Yeah. Oh, was that, that's the one scene where like somebody comes in and says, stop right there, and then they hit him on the head, and then someone else says, stop right there, and they hit him on the head. That was comedy gold, <laughs> and yet, of course, the episode can't, can't admit it. Okay. Okay. Just a little on the tropish side. Just a little. In this scene, we also get someone who now says that the alien that they're dealing with is from 4,000 years in the past. Still wrong. It's not even consistent inside of this episode. <laughs> the writer should feel ashamed. Meanwhile, Jack also wants to ask Hathor some questions, and she praises him for killing Ra, takes off his shirt, and her belly device is glowing. She presses it against Jack, and next thing we know, he's a Jaffa with belly slits. 
or he has the belly splits anyway. I guess that he wouldn't actually be a Jaffa until he gets a uh, snake larva. Well, I mean, won't be a Jaffa for long. So my understanding is the Primta really is this action of using one of their glowing disc things to change a human into a Jaffa mm-hmm. who will then die if they don't get a larva in them pretty soon. Actually, no, I think I think you were right that there are the two steps. The primta is the second step of getting the gold. Okay. The first step is getting the pouch, and that's what Ryak already had done. And that's the bit that kills your immune system because yep. we know that from the re- reaction that O'Neill goes through. Yep. Okay, so the women and Teal'c find... Jack passed out in front of the hot tub. Hathor rises from the hot tub, or actually the women hide when they see her coming out. She puts Jack into the hot tub to receive what she says will be her first and therefore strongest child, so he can be the prime of the Jaffa. Then she leaves. The women get him out. Janet Fraser sticks her unsanitary hand into the (laughs) belly slits to feel around and see if there's a snake. There isn't. I guess this is okay because then they immediately take him to the sarcophagus for healing. <laughs> Pragmatism. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> okay, so my super science question is, if sarcophagi heal humans from the Jaffa process, does that mean that uh, the Gould didn't come up with this technology either and stole it too? Because otherwise, wouldn't they have a setting? <laughs> wouldn't the sarcophagus recognize that these modifications are deliberate and not heal them back? Well, they don't need to heal Jaffa because Jaffa with uh, Gould in them will heal themselves. So it may have just not come up. Hmm. Well, and, you know, they write the technology to have it do exactly what it needs to do in the episode where it first appears. (laughs) Um, We have seen this already. It's an interesting question, absolutely. But I also think that they made the thing do what it needed to do. I mean, they clearly made it so it doesn't heal getting a gould out of your head because it's used to store people who have goulds in their heads. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. Yeah, because Ra heals himself. And also, Hathor is in the thing for a long time. So so yeah, yeah. Totally does exactly what it needs for the plot. In the movie, it takes Jackson a while to heal. Here, it takes like two seconds, right? Because again, the plot kind of needs him to be done really quick. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyway, men come in and see this healing going on and shoot at the women. Hathor orders them to stop because they will harm her new Jaffa. The coffin opens. Jack says, what's going on? Obviously, reset. A Hathor hand blasts him, but he gets out in time, and the coffin blows up, and Jack's belly scars are gone. Jack gives Sam the helpful information that there are tranquilizer guns in lockup C, whatever and wherever that is. Don't play it down. That's O'Neill's hero moment for this episode. Yep. <laughs> That's all they needed him for. Yep. Wherever she's fled to, Hathor demands that the men bring Carter to her for retribution. Daniel begs her for mercy for Carter, and Hathor says no. Carter arrives, shoots. Hathor falls into the water. The water turns pink with blood, one assumes. And then the water catches on fire. (laughs) Daniel yells no! And they drag him out of there. Somehow, Hathor escapes the burning bloody water through the Stargate. And they found out she went to Chulak. Daniel wakes up from his daze. Later, we see Janet cooking up goo from the floor. She's going to find out what she can with cellular analysis and maybe pick up some DNA. And Daniel admits that probably a lot of that will be his. And Jack just says, you. And I checked the closed caption and it was Y-O-U, not E-W-W. On my first viewing, I thought it was E-W-W, but I checked closed captions as well and I was surprised. I thought you was the right answer. (laughs) 
I thought I saw EWW in the closed captions that I used, so that's really weird. Wow. But okay. It literally could be either. I wouldn't trust the closed caption for that line. This is the the bit where I thought the show was kind of treating it more lightly than it than it should have. It, it did kind of feel like this was their, you know, sort of lighthearted ha ha kind of moment about the whole thing and I didn't like it. I didn't think it was lighthearted. I thought they were looking at him in shock and some sympathy. Okay. Anyway, Hammond comes in, Sam apologizes for hitting him on the head, and he says he's putting up Sam and Janet for commendations. Damn straight. And I kind of like the scene where Hathor on the other side of the fire, you can just see her get up and walk out of the room. I know, right? I had never noticed that before, but I, because I was like, how did she get to the gate room? She's in the, she's in the thing. And the, the fan site was like, no, no, look carefully. There's a scene where she comes out of it. And wow. Yeah. I think the thing that, that, that you miss is because um Daniel is looking at the hot tub unchanged as she's walking out of it. So again, the sort of the fan site that I looked at was like, you can hear the shield interacting with the water or something. So I didn't. Didn't go that far with it. But yeah, good good on you, Hathor. <laughs> I suppose she just got someone else to dial the gate for her. We just didn't see it. Yeah. There's another bit with the with the fan site that like there's a voice that says off-road activation or like whatever whatever they say when the gate does that. Oh, okay, there is. It's a guy's voice. Yes. <laughs> there's a lot of men on the base. Maybe some technician was standing watch and she just missed at him. But yeah, like so so of course Hathor, like any good villain. Gets to, you know, we'll meet again, you know, <laughs> so, so cliched a uh, thing. And of course, much of what's in this episode is cliched that, you know, oh, we'll see, we'll see them again. And of course, I guess you get that with the prophets as well, but this was a very, uh, a very traditional moment for, for villains, I think, in, in shows like this. After watching Bloodlines, I was happy I watched Hathor because it really makes a big difference in terms of the biology and the life cycle of the gold mm-hmm. it's worth watching this episode it was worth watching it's a little horrible when you said trish said you like the sort of the girl power aspects of, of this episode there just weren't that many <laughs> examples of girl power <laughs> back then yeah i mean seriously there were not many female-centric shows right. certainly not many female-centric episodes of this show right. and i guess i leaned a lot more heavily on that as bad as the jail cell scenes were uh happy to see that representation at all, no matter how questionably done it was. Again, I think we just see that like they can't really write women all that well, like those lines in the cell room, mm-hmm. which they always use whenever anyone is a prisoner for any reason, they always use that set, which I think is hysterical. <laughs> but you know, they just can't write what women are really like. And of course, I'm not like I can really attest to that exactly as well. But you know, even I can kind of see that these are the lines that men write for women. Actually, you know, what? that's not true. I looked in that, that fan site. I think this might actually have been written by a woman. So I can't even use that excuse for this, that it was men writing women. But yeah, it just seemed so... It could have been written by a woman and then tinkered with heavily by the male showrunners or something. Could be, yeah. There were definitely moments where, you know, women got to sort of kind of lead and do active things. But yeah, it still didn't feel very much like a a blow for uh, feminism or or women being more free to, to do what they like. I also see this in a lot of shows where... When they do finally give the women characters a moment to be the protagonist, they pair them off against women antagonists because that's somehow something that seems appropriate to a lot of writers. And, you know, so that happened here as well. So Hathor is the, the, the bad guy in this one. So, of course, the women are the one to, to fight Hathor. I do think that they really wanted to do sort of femme fatale moments 
in this episode, they wanted to show Hathor being all sexy and have the show have a little bit of that element in it because it doesn't normally have all that much that's sexy in the episode. But uh, yeah, they could have had a good episode again. I think Hathor could have been a better villain. This idea of um, sex goddesses is absolutely, of course, something that is happens in um, in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, fertile ground, <laughs> shall I say, for that sort of a thing. But uh, I just don't think they, they didn't know quite how to do it so well. So this is what we got. Hathor, we're going to see Hathor again, obviously, because she survives and she gets to escape. And I guess you'll get to see whether those later episodes are any better than this one. Time will tell. Right. Before we go to the next episode, I just want to give a little bit of a Stargate news. The YouTube show Doll the Gate interviewed Sue Ann Brown, who is the actress who portrayed Hathor and who hosts a 20 or so series on YouTube called Hathor Hosts TV. Okay. (laughs) And the episode of Dial the Gate that interviews her is called Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Because during the show, I think Jack made the connection that Hathor was the goddess of fertility, wine, and music. So sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Sue Ann Brown told the interviewer that she's British. She auditioned with an American accent, just playing the goddess, you know, in a short scene. She didn't really know anything about the show. So after they said, thanks, uh, we'll call you or not, uh, she asked them whether this woman was really a goddess or if she was just crazy. (laughs) And they asked, can you kind of do both with a British accent? (laughs) And so she auditioned that way and got the part. (laughs) Other little tidbits. They basically sewed her into her costume, that dress. She could not sit down in it. And they set up a kind of slanted board that she could sort of lean back on and rest a little bit. (laughs) between takes and she got back to the hotel totally dehydrated because she couldn't drink in that costume because you know she couldn't take it off to go to the bathroom oh right okay young but one really interesting thing that she talked about it is that you know if we made that show now maybe the women should not have been immune to Hathor (laughs) so she talked a little bit about how society's understanding and certainly TV's portrayals of sexuality have changed over the years would hope that actress is is good for this role like she he totally vamps it up and it has fun and she's obviously playing you know over the top in a way that i think also the actor for uh for apophis is also playing over the top so i think that totally matches i think she did the best she could with this material definitely mm-hmm. so i will put in a link for that i also watched a few episodes of her hathor hosts tv yeah and it's kind of charming she starts out just basically in her living room just starts talking and later on there's theme music and you know screens and stuff um and people sent her fan memorabilia like a little doll of Hathor in, in its costume so it's kind of fun she talks to Kate Hewlett who played Jeannie McKay in Stargate Atlantis and later she has David Hewlett and there's an interview with Amanda Tapping and there's also a few interviews with non-Stargate people like Claudia Christian so that's kind of fun you can check that out I'll put a link in Next, we can move on to the next episode. Singularity. SG-1 goes to an SG team preparing to watch a black hole during an eclipse. They find everyone on the planet dead except one girl named Cassandra. That's ominous. Cassandra grows a bomb in her chest, but after O'Neill and Tilk discover the Gauld Nirti's ship in orbit, they gate home to get the girl away from the Stargate, which could trigger the bomb. They put Cassandra underground and wait for her to explode while Carter comforts her. 
there is no kaboom. The end. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little sparse. Um. <laughs> Was it though? I don't know. When you say it, it doesn't sound all that suspenseful, but I actually found this episode to do a pretty good job of building suspense throughout. Of the three, this is my favorite episode. Yeah. But yeah, so they come to this new planet and they're chatting back and forth uh, that O'Neill knows what the term accretion disk is. So, you know, he's, he's smarter than, especially uh, Daniel gives him credit for and they come in, but then they find that they are, in fact, instead of going on a scientific mission, they're going on a horror mission because all the people are dead. So the, there's the first scene where they come out through the Stargate and they find the dead person. And O'Neill says MOP4, which is apparently a, a real thing. It's a procedure to decontaminate yourself as much as you possibly can when you find things like this. And so the team puts on these hoods with breathing apparatuses and they wash their hands, which all sounds fine, but then they leave the rest of their clothing as is. So I see that the uh, the show is doing just as well with contamination procedures as it normally does. I don't know. I'll give them more credit than that. I didn't see some of the stuff you guys were complaining about in the previous podcast about decontamination, but for always having available stuff to put on, right. I think they did a pretty good job. I mean, maybe they should have gone back to the Stargate right away to get real suits, but but at least they they did, I think, a pretty good job of put on gears, wash hands, they put on gloves, yep. and that was the best they could do. And we see other decontamination stuff with multiple stages later on. Yeah. I think this episode did a pretty good job with decontamination. It, it's true. And um, although it, apparently the Mop 4, it actually does specify full body hazmat uh, clothing which they didn't do, again, because they didn't want to spend the time on it. They get closer than they have ever done. All of these things, whenever they do something which is not based on the actual real-world stuff, it's always for the drama. They didn't want to have the characters in these bulky hoods very long. So, you know, they eventually took them off when they, quote-unquote, decontaminated the entirety of that room, which, how do you do that on an alien planet? I don't think you can really do that and decontaminate entire room, but I could be wrong. So they could take off the hoods, and then later on, they have the full hazmat suits, which have these wonderfully unobstructed clear plastic fronts to the helmets so that the actors can all emote and do things like that. (laughs) We're paying good money for these pretty faces. So they get everybody in the observatory and Frasier comes in. So that's fun to see Frasier again. And they get examined Uh and Daniel sneezes. I was very pleased that he sneezed and that Jack says allergies, right? So they keep coming back to that. It wasn't just a throwaway from that episode. I, I love that they keep bringing it back up. They do. A nice nice one-off joke. <laughs> and, and I think when I was said earlier on in our podcast, they do mention Daniel's allergies a number of times. This was probably the one that I was thinking of in the later episode where they mentioned him. Mm-hmm. This also was a nice episode to follow our previous podcast where we were discussing whether O'Neill is actually an idiot about science or not. Right. And they actually even reference him having a telescope on his deck, whether or not to just look at the neighbors, Mm -hmm. to show that, yes, he actually does have some scientific knowledge. He just uh, likes to play it up. They go look for more of the bodies in their nice yellow hazmat suits, and they find Cassandra. And so Teal'c, I guess because Teal'c is the one without a hazmat suit on, although... Again, you can see their faces really well. So having Teal go to talk with Cassandra first because he's got his face fully visible doesn't seem like such a great idea given Teal. But he had quite the grimace on his face too in that scene. <laughs> he did smile. He did. He was fine when he was approaching Cassandra though. Yeah, no, he was actually quite, quite friendly looking. Yep. I thought it's nice when they let Chris judge. I don't have to have that, that look on his face the whole time. So, so this is the beginning of You know, the whole Cassandra Carter thing. They talk about how she's got a bond with the girl. I did like those scenes. I thought that uh, Amanda Tapping did, you know, did a good job with those scenes. 
I was uncomfortable throughout with this idea that, you know, you put the woman on the team in this role of being the surrogate mother for this child. Mm -hmm. And there are other parts where they get even more egregious with that later on in the episode. But, you know, given that they they felt they had to do it like that, they actually did a pretty good job with it. I liked that actress. The Cassandra actress. And we talked about uh, Aliens in our previous episode. You know, she's channeling Newt here, obviously, from Aliens. Yes. Where, you know, they find the child alone on a devastated planet. And it's funny, I remember seeing something in Wikipedia about that actress who was in Aliens, where they had a hard time finding a professional child actor who could be that morose on camera, because children are taught to smile for the camera for commercials and things. And yet this actress who played Cassandra is also just real pro at being sort of stern and and unhappy and all of that. So I think that pretty nice. It is Katie Stewart. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, anyway, yeah. Katie Stewart did a did a good job. Yep. She was a Kitty Pride in X Two. No. Really? <laughs> okay. And also, there was a early two thousand questionably made Wrinkle in Time miniseries, and she was Meg Murray, mm-hmm. and that's where I think I recognized her from. Good that she she got some work. It seemed throughout this episode is that Carter is with. This girl and the girl doesn't want her to leave, so Carter doesn't get to do all that much else except interact with this girl through this episode. I just wanted to note the line, yes, I want to talk more about all that, but uh, before they head her back through the Stargate, Sam says of going through the gate, I know it looks scary, but it's really a lot of fun, (laughs) which is the only time I can think of that anyone says (laughs) going through the gate is fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing, and again, we'll get to a little more of this later on in the episode, is they really kind of don't give her much due for being a survivor of a massacre of her family and everyone else she has ever known. Mm -hmm. They do a little bit of it, and enough to know, I think, that they know they're not doing much more of it, but they spend a lot of time trying to be like, hey, you're on Earth now. Earth's fun. And like, you know, give her a minute here. She's been through this traumatic experience. Well, they did give her a minute. She starts off silent and they don't really try to push her. She finally does start talking after there's been an interval because at first you see Sam taking her to this room that is really a bare cell. And then later on you see posters and uh, stuffed animals and stuff. And the room is a lot brighter and nicer. And Cassandra is doing paints. So presumably someone has tried to help her with art therapy. Very sad paintings. Yes. Very, (laughs) very sad drawings (laughs) with lots of stick figures, horizontal lying on the ground. Lots of dead stick figures. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I think there's supposed to be a time lapse going through this episode that we don't see all the time she spends there. So you think there was actually maybe like a day or a couple of days while they're waiting for that I think a few days, eclipse? yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. The only problem was I don't know how long they had O'Neill and Teal'c watching for the black hole. Right. That kind of compresses it a bit mm-hmm. because we know that yeah. they weren't there for that long. So that, that sort of limits how much time the episode could have been. Okay. So not weeks, but I think- Days would be reasonable. Days, maybe. Okay. Right. So there's a couple of things. That drawing that we mentioned, very memorable drawing. Mm -hmm. You know, Carter comes in and just literally inserts herself into this girl's experience by saying, no, I'm here too, and you're not alone. Well, you know, give the girl a chance to grieve about her family and her people being dead before you say, but I'm here to save you. Uh, it rubbed me a little bit the wrong way, that bit, but okay, I guess I'm done. I, I have a daughter who's about the same age as Cassandra. This episode was a little hard to watch in parts. <laughs> oh, yeah. But yeah, so the other thing about the, the time compression, so O'Neill and Teal'c are left on the planet to watch the eclipse. Now, okay, 
they're watching a black hole and they want to see the accretion disk of a black hole. You don't need an eclipse to see the accretion disk of a black hole. <laughs> so they're kind of conflating like having a sun. Mm. The only challenge is why can't they see it at night? And the reason could be it actually is in moderate close proximity to the sun or behind the sun. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's some astronomy problems in this episode, but I can kind of understand the idea of yeah. because of the orientation, they have to see it during the day. They can only see it during the day if the sun is dark, because then you'll see the disk of all the material burning up yeah. as it goes into the black hole because that's not producing quite as much light as your nearby star. Okay, yeah. And then having that as being the thing that allows you to see what else is in space nearby was, I think, a nice touch. Yeah. As astronomy goes, it's not that bad. It's not the worst they could do, yeah. No, no, definitely not. Right. Part of the thing is the picture, though, of the eclipse was the camera full on the eclipse instead of off to see the black hole nearby the eclipse. But this is the scene where O'Neill talks about things getting sucked into a black hole in totally (laughs) non-technical, silly description. We had talked before about how O'Neill was intentionally dumbing himself down to tweak the scientists. Well, Teal'c is no scientist. So I think this scene tells me, this is this is one of the cues that the show was telling me anyway, that O'Neill really could be that dumb sometimes <laughs> and without any good excuse for being that dumb. It's funny to see, you know, again, Christopher Judge and Richard Dean Anderson having that little back and forth, but I also felt it made him inexcusably stupid in this scene and I just it annoyed me I can only give you a Doyleist answer which is they're used to him taking on this role around Jackson and Carter all the time <laughs> yeah. and the writers just fell into it and they probably shouldn't have I think it was just that 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 is my headcanon for yep. the reason why he <laughs> really fails entirely in the scene also they open the roof to the, to the sky having no concern about contamination anymore they did say that it wasn't airborne but still that seems to be, again, a bit of a, an iffy moment for them. But that is not the most important part of this episode. The most important part of this episode is when they find out that Cassandra actually has this bomb growing in her chest, which I, I thought was a really good kind of idea of like, mm-hmm. how do we have conflict with the world without having a big, expensive CGI battle every time? And oh, they're gonna they're gonna try to sort of sneak something in to the SGC to to get rid of them. And I, I did again like Daniel at one point mentioned that it was a cheap alternative. Mm-hmm. And I like that as well, that the Gould are maybe fighting each other, so they don't actually wanna put a lot of their efforts towards Earth and make themselves at risk to other Gould. But if they can do something good or sneaky, they can do that. Right. It makes a lot of sense that they try alternative methods, you know, having sent probes or Jaffa fruitlessly against the gate because of its iris that they'll try and think of some other things that they can do. I really liked this plot. This is such a an attempt to be clever in a very stargate kind of way. <laughs> and I really quite liked it. Like, the fear in all these episodes is everyone dies, there's one survivor, and that survivor then becomes the source of the cure, and they even lantern that. Yep. And then it's like, nope, that's not what's going on at all. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is entirely a clever ploy to get themselves to blow themselves up and blow up their Stargate, and I was I was really quite happy with the machinations. Those are the machinations that I'd, I like to see in my villains. Yeah, it's a sort of television level of cleverness, right? It's not like total super science. Yeah, it's a little fragile, but yeah. Yeah, as Jackson says, they used that little girl like a Trojan horse, which is what the uh, writers did too. <laughs> yep, you bet. <laughs> and they do it kind of by stages. And I'm not going to go through all the stages, but, um, and, you know, they, they ratchet up the tension about it. And oh, they have to, you know, have the scene where they're going to send her to the gate, but then they've got to get 
Teal'c and O'Neill back through the gate to stop them, and they manage to stop them, so that's good. But then they've got this moment where, oh, we're going to take her away from the gate. You know, they do talk through, you know, they give you all the clues that you need, again, in sort of TV level of complexity, where they say she fell asleep at the gate or she went into a coma, and then she wakes up when they take her away from the Stargate, Yep, which makes it really clear that if you take her from the Stargate, she might not blow up, but then they still have a lot of tension there, and, you know, a little, a nice little character moment where... O'Neill tells the rest of the team at the top of this facility to take her to that like, oh, no, you guys leave. I'll just stay. And they're like, nope, we're staying. Like, nice little moment. Although, of course, whether that would actually be of any help whatsoever to them to like, oh, we're going to get a mile away from this whole area that might get, you know, completely destroyed. They definitely should not have stayed at the top of that elevator shaft. The top of that elevator shaft was not safe. No, no, no. <laughs> but they knew that. And and therefore the scene worked. Yeah. Yeah. They decided to stay because they're idiots, but they decided to stay. And then... <laughs> You know, the whole point that that, uh, that Carter was able to sort of figure out that the bomb was, might not go off and therefore she, she there was some hope in staying with the girl was good. Of course, the bad aspect of it was that they kept trying to portray it as, again, sort of mother's intuition. And of course, Teal'c even says that at the end. And Carter says that's not true, but I think the show is kind of trying to make that happen. Yeah, there were some emotional beats that I really liked in the show, yep. but I did feel that they kind of did a baited switch. So I really liked the moments where Daniel offers to take a shift for Carter so that yeah. Carter can you know, get some rest. Mm-hmm. And Carter says that it's okay, I want to do this. And Daniel says, you don't have to do this alone. I like that interplay taken by itself. Yeah, exactly. But I don't like, as you said before, that you know Sam so totally falls for this little kid. But given that she does fall for this little kid so hard, the ending just does not feel real to me. Where Teal'c says mother's intuition and, and Sam says subtle, not really subtle. <laughs> but no, Jana Frazier will take her until we can find yep. qualified parents with security clearance. And it wouldn't be surprised if Janet Frazier wants to keep her for herself. And that just felt totally out of the blue and wrong to me. Yep. I understand that for show reasons, they wouldn't want Sam to have a kid that they would have to keep accounting for how it's okay for Sam to go off on week-long missions and stuff, being a single parent. Janet, of course, also would be a single parent since she has an (laughs) ex-husband. That doesn't really help. (laughs) But she's on the base most of the time. So it just feels, you know, for Sam to have bonded so hard and fast with this girl and possibly risks her life to not leave the girl alone, uh, you know, at the crucial moment. And then to just say, oh, I think Janet's going to take her. It just felt totally wrong. You're you're entirely correct. All wrong. (laughs) Yep. I did like aspects of that Carter and Jackson scene where Carter says, I know I'm supposed to be detached. And Jackson says, who said that? And then Carter says, Sometimes I forget you're not military. Yeah, I loved that moment. That was really nice. (laughs) That was a nice little touch. I also really liked the scene with Carter and Hammond, which I thought there was a nice bit of writing where Carter says, I know this decision is not easy for you. And Hammond very accurately says, in fact, the decision is quite easy. The consequences are what's difficult. Yeah. And that was right. that was nice. Nice line, nice delivery. Yeah. Yep. Right. So yeah, there are some really good emotional beats in this and some really good and well-delivered lines. I'm just 
the whole conclusion, like I said, bait and switch is how it felt. You know, we've got the bonding with Sam, but we're going to shunt off the girl to Janet instead. They want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be able to show an emotional moment. And again, this is another one of those episodes where they're trying to focus on one of the other members of the team and again, Kluji <laughs> in certain ways to cram that into an episode, this episode format. And yeah, they, they want to be able to have her have a big emotional moment, but then not be tied down at the end. And the only way that worked for me was the fact that um, Carter did fall for the girl, but over and over again, she tried to get away from her. <laughs> Especially at the beginning. Like, no, no, I have work to do. No, no, I have work to do. And you know, it kind of made sense to me that she's like, no, no, I, I do have a work life. I do have a work, you know, a job. I will stay in touch with you, but I am not going to be your mother. Ah, wow, I can't even imagine. And it's funny, right? Because I, I can imagine the rest of the show because I saw it. <laughs> I can't imagine the show being retargeted such that Sam has a kid. And I guess that's probably why it didn't feel like bait and switch to me. Although you're absolutely right. It absolutely is a bait and switch. Didn't feel like that to me because I know how the rest of the show goes. But, um, you know, yeah, it would have been a better show if they had actually dealt with that. And of course, with these writers, could they have actually done that? Could they have done it justice? But it would have been a better show if they had been able to handle her actually having a daughter and having long-term consequences from what happens. But they didn't. Or if they had given Janet the bonding role from the beginning. Right, right. Wouldn't that have been great? Oh, because they never, they, well, uh, you know, Dr. Frazier is on a bunch more episodes Given the fact that they haven't necessarily done Samantha Carter justice in this episodes we've seen so far, it will not surprise you to know that they're not necessarily doing Frasier justice throughout the rest of the show. But my God, yeah, like imagine a Frasier-centric episode where she gets to have a daughter afterwards. That would have been amazing. Mm -hmm. Fanfic. The economy of characters yeah. and the leads have to be the ones who get the roles. And it's right. a challenge for writing a narrative when even that might not make sense, but they have to do it that way anyway. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's just a consequence of the production industry. And I think productions are better these days at this. And being willing to be heavily serialized helps that. Yeah. yeah. That has its own problems, but yeah. And this is just not the state TV was in at the time. Well, and it would have been nice to have an episode which was, you know, even like Sam and Daniel dealing with the girl, because they gave Daniel enough moments to know that they could have written him to be more of a father figure towards this girl, more of another parenting figure. Mm -hmm. And they just didn't want to do it because they wanted to have this to be a Sam episode. But, you know, hey, so maybe have three of them. Maybe have like a group episode where like they're all kind of trying to deal with this girl. Uh, and again, I'm writing fan fiction in my head. So there we go. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> this is a recipe for fan fiction. There's a lot of fan fiction out there. Mm -hmm. So you thought this was kind of the best episode of the ones we've reviewed today? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I would just like to point out there is no rule here on earth that every kid has got to have a dog. <laughs> that is a very Western centric way of thinking. And even in the West, not every kid has to have a dog. Yep. You can have cats or rabbits or fish or no pets at all. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. I can understand that Jack would maybe be thoughtful enough to give a pet for a orphan kid to love, but you don't do that for someone who's about to go into an adoption situation. <laughs> no. Right. Right, right, right. Oh, well. <laughs> but Jack is clearly a dog person. That's pretty obvious. I have a cat two feet from me right now. <laughs> I also quite liked, I have to admit, the scene in some park in Vancouver where she has to say her lie, I was born in a place called Toronto. Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a funny bit. You know, I, I liked it too, but I, I had a lot of problems with it, but I, had, I did like it. I think it's one of the better episodes of season one. So uh, there you go. Well, I think that will... 
do it for this time. Another fun conversation. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Happy to be here. If you, our listeners, would like to continue the conversation with us, you can talk with us on the Incomparables Slack feed for members. We also have a new Twitter account. It's Stargate underscore SG underscore fun. Right. That will tweet out all of the podcast episodes that we do. And so you you can follow that and find out when we uh, put new episodes up. Right. We'll all be following that account and can uh, talk to anyone who wants to bring up points that they think we may have missed or dispute with us or agree with us about whatever we said. We'll look forward to that. And thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye.